0: Welcome everyone to The Elevator Pitch, an ATS Breathe Easy podcast. My name is Siva Bavani. I'm an assistant professor of medicine at Emory University. On this podcast, I talk to the scientists behind innovative new studies to get their elevator pitch, the big picture story behind their research. And importantly, we explore how these studies can change the way we care for patients in the ICU. Today, we go to Boston to speak with Dr. Susan Hahn. Dr. Han and I know each other from our time at University of Chicago. Dr. Han, could you introduce yourself to the listeners?
1: Absolutely, um, great to be here today, Siva. Thanks for inviting me. So as uh, Siva mentioned, we trained together at University of Chicago, where we completed pump Care Fellowship. Um, while there's really developed an interest in sort of health services research and sort of leveraging big data to really understand sort of the quality of care that we're delivering in ICUs. Um, Since graduating, I'm actually just starting out here at Tufts Medical Center in Boston as an assistant professor um, in their pulmonary critical care section, and so very excited to be here today and talk a little bit about um, some work that I've done over the past couple of years.
0: Great, and uh, we're here to talk about your study, Identifying High-Risk Subphenotypes and Associated Harms from Delayed Antibiotic Orders and Delivery. The novel findings from the study were recently published in Critical Care Medicine. Dr. Han, could you give us your elevator pitch for this study?
1: Absolutely. So our intention with this study was really to Reinterrogate the idea of early antibiotic therapy through a fresh lens. Um, so the traditional time to antibiotic metric that's been studied actually really includes two distinct time periods that reflect fundamentally different processes. So first, there's the time from patient presentation to the time that antibiotics are first ordered um, or the order delay. And this delay period reflects issues like triage time in the ER, time it takes for a diagnostics and tests to process, and I think most importantly, really just the development of clinician suspicion and recognition that there is infection or sepsis. And then after that, there's really the time it takes from the time that the antibiotic is ordered to when the first antibiotic is actually administered, or the delivery delay. Um, And this delay period really reflects different processes, such as pharmacy processing, um, time for the drug to be delivered to patient bedside, and then just prioritization, the overall patient care workflow. So to determine the association between each delay type and hospital mortality, we use objective clinical criteria to identify a cohort of over 60,000 patients with infection across six different hospital centers. Um, in this population, we found that each additional hour of delay uh, was associated with a 4% increase in mortality, um, this order delay while each additional hour of delivery delay was associated with a 5% increase in in in-hospital mortality. And actually, we did find significant differences in demographics and clinical characteristics um, between patients experiencing each type of delay, suggesting that there are actually some patient-level factors that could place certain individuals at greater risk for experiencing one or both of these delays. Um, And then lastly, sort of within this really broad, you know, heterogeneous population of patients, um, we used machine learning methods to identify a clinically unique group of older patients with larger comorbidity burden, uh, greater um, early organ dysfunction, and elevated lactates, who were at, you know, really particularly high risk of death associated with these delays. Um, And this high risk subphenotype, you know, this group experienced a 7% increase in risk of death with each hour of delay compared to just 2% in the remainder of the population. So over three times the risk with each hour of delay. Um, And so this interesting sort of, you know, high risk subgroup, we really prioritize and target for very aggressive early antibiotic therapy.
0: That's really interesting. And there's a lot to unpack there. But you know, I think the big thing that stands out is before the study, um, I always thought about antibiotic delays as this one monolithic entity. And as you were just saying, one of the major points in the study is that antibiotic delays are actually made up of these two distinct components, um, as you call them, ordering delays and delivery delays. Could you tell us who the patients are who are affected by each of these delays and how um, we can address these two very different delays?
1: Definitely, so there are some um, overlapping features and then some differences. So interestingly, we found that in both groups, the patients experiencing delays tended to be more likely female um, and were more likely African-American. So those were sort of the demographic characteristics. And in terms of you know, patients who were experiencing order delays, um, essentially the way that I would summarize is that these are patients who came in with less obvious signs of acute illness and maybe atypical presentations of sepsis. So less classic, you know, less pulmonary infections, less if you're classic pneumonias and respiratory failures, um, lower sort of early organ dysfunction scores, um, more normal lactates. On the other hand, the patients experiencing delivery delays, you know, weren't that different from the um, patients who did not experience delays. But they actually tended to have um, more early sort of you know critical care needs and interventions, and so that suggested to us that potentially there was an issue with prioritization the patient care workflow. So you can imagine, you know, if you have a patient who is um, here are the respiratory failure, and it's getting BiPAP or undergoing intubation, and then also getting you know, pressors in the line and all of these other interventions or scans and things like that, that perhaps um, the antibiotics, unfortunately, maybe are delayed in the patient care workflow, or it takes longer for them to actually receive the antibiotics even after the clinician wants them to be um, initiated because there's sort of just so much going on clinically and other interventions are taking precedence. And you know, just thinking about this, I think um, thinking about character, defining these delay types really came from trying to understand how can we even target and shorten these delays. I think um, there's you know, been a lot of literature and a lot of recommendations about targeting certain time periods, and you know, healthcare systems are really trying to improve this metric. Um, but what interventions are actually effective and you know, from those interventions, I think we can see, okay, are these more systems-based interventions looking at pharmacy processes? Are they more based on, you know, substance screening and early identification? And just thinking about that kind of led us to naturally define these, um, you know, delay periods that I think would benefit from very different types of interventions.
0: Yeah, that's, I mean, that's really interesting that, the way you would even go about targeting these things would be different as far as, you know, whether you take a more systems-based approach or if, as you are saying, if it's more about the actual identification itself. And, you know, when we talk about antibiotic delays, I think a lot of people's minds, you know, go to the CEP1 guidelines or the New York state guidelines. Um, So I would be interested in hearing how um, you think your findings fit into the context of these guidelines and how your research can inform, you know, current or future guidelines.
1: Yeah, I think it's, um, this is a really complicated area, right? Because I think there is a really growing body of evidence that early antibiotics are um, associated with improved outcomes. But at the same time, there's a lot of concern that this sort of, you know, one size fits all um, protocolized approach of, oh, every patient where you suspect infection, sepsis needs to get. And antibiotics within, let's say, you know, the updated um, SSC guidelines at one hour. There's obviously a lot of concern that this could lead to overutilization and sort of inappropriate, um, you know, utilization of healthcare resources, uh, increased, you know, unintentional adverse events from antibiotic administration, and also there are healthcare systems that may not have the resources to really devote towards building this. Um, actually quite complex, you know, system to sort of monitor and implement these step one guidelines. So I definitely see the arguments on both sides. I think, you know, our study, in a sense, it obviously supports um, sort of the idea that Earlier is better. Um, in addition to the sort of increase in mortality that we saw with each hour of delay when we sort of created these cutoffs, let's say, you know, excessive versus non-excessive delays. Um, for order delays of greater than three hours, we saw that there was a 23% um, increase in risk of death. And for delivery delay greater than one hour, it was a 26% increase. So really, you know, profound increase. And obviously. Um, that sort of fits in with prior recommendations. But I think the sort of, I guess, added element that this study um, suggests is that, well, there's still room for clinician judgment, and there's still room for us to sort of think about the patient in front of us and to not be overly prescriptive. Um, You know, let's say that we're in a setting with limited resources, or, you know, honestly, let's say maybe, we should think about there are certain patients that really should be um prioritized or should get even more attention than your standard patient and i think this high risk subphenotype that we identified gives us you know sort of a place to work from um, and is this a phenotype that we want to validate further and think that okay so you're in an er for example and you have um you know like 30 or 40 sick patients or patients with possible infection um who do i make sure absolutely you know gets the antibiotics as soon as possible and are really the the first ones to to get their therapy and maybe may benefit the most um versus other patients where of course you don't want any unnecessary delays but maybe not um, the ones that you say are marked as sort of the highest need or the highest risk patient. So I do think it will be helpful in that sense, and maybe adds a little bit of sort of nuance to the conversation instead of just thinking every single patient you know that is septic is the same. Um, but obviously, this phenotype needs to be studied further, and we need to think of ways of sort of implementing this um, in clinical workflows.
0: And I think that's definitely one of the big takeaways that you know maybe the one size fits all approach would not work, and you know there is a rationale behind identifying these high risk patients or as um yeah you know your study alluded to this high risk subphenotype who are at the highest risk of getting harmed by delays in antibiotics. Could you tell us um, how the study can inform clinicians at the bedside in recognizing these high risk patients um, in the situations that you're kind of talking about at ER that's kind of flooded with patients in the current kind of crises that we're experiencing, how can what can clinicians kind of take away to figure out how to recognize these patients that are at the highest risk?
1: Yeah, definitely. So I think what's interesting about this um, high risk of phenotype that we identified is that they aren't necessarily captured by any one, you know, test or characteristic, right? When we um, use our standard definitions of septic shock, we found that actually only 17% of this high-risk group met clinical criteria for septic shock. Um, And similarly, when we looked at just lactates, you know, high lactates. This group had um, a higher median lactate, of course, but not all of the patients had the high lactate. And if we did our analyses focusing only on those with abnormal lactates, we did see that those patients were higher risk but not as high risk as this group. So I think it's a combination of recognizing that these patients have sort of underlying vulnerability. Um, They're older, uh, they had more likely a greater comorbidity burden, Um, so they're more vulnerable. And then they also come in with more organ dysfunction um, and with higher lactates. So it's this combination, I think, of higher acuity illness um, and sort of this underlying vulnerability that really places these patients at the greatest risk. You know, I think if we had to pick one, you know, one particular test or feature, um, I would say that lactates are useful. And I know obviously, you know, there's a lot of concern too about sort of um, just making decisions based on one lab value. And lactates can of course be elevated for pretty benign reasons like medications, et cetera. But I do think, you know, if you do have a sort of vulnerable patient, and you see that they are, have a sort of striking lactate, it may at least at the minimum be um, a flag to really reevaluate the patient and sort of ask yourself, oh, is there something going on that we haven't caught yet? Um could this patient be at risk for, you know, developing sepsis and septic shock? And should we intervene pretty aggressively? So it's a it's nice flag just to sort of um, grab your attention and kind of make you Question, you know, what's going on clinically with this patient. But I do think, again, it's sort of this constellation of features that should tr- trigger, you know, alarm, um, alarm bells and think, okay, this is a vulnerable patient. And I want to be really confident that I'm not missing an infectious process that could um, really develop and lead to a really bad outcome for this individual.
0: That's interesting. I mean, lactate plays a role in such a diverse set of critical care processes, but again, it seems pretty important in recognition of these high-risk patients as well. Um, But as you said, it's just one lab value in this interrelated complex kind of algorithm that's identifying these high-risk patients. Um, So it'll be interesting to see kind of the uh, work going forward. But thank you so much for the remarkable insights into your study. Uh, Dr. Han. could you also tell our listeners your plans for the future?
1: And yeah, no, thanks so much for the opportunity to be here. Um, so currently, you know, I'm hoping to kind of get solid here and here in Boston, um, working mostly in the ICU in my current role, and then you know the other getting involved in medical education here with the fellowship and um, residents. In terms of you know research, I think. Really, the past few years have made me really interested in sort of finding creative um, but rigorous ways to really leverage the wealth of EHR data that we now have um, to answer some of these clinical questions. You know, for example, in this study, one of the key elements was that with our you know EHR data, we now have the time that um, of antibiotic order, and so really just this very simple data point allowed us to sort of reinterrogate um, early antibiotic therapy in a different way and to ask sort of new questions. And working with the data also, I sort of realized you know, how challenging that is and how difficult it is to really have, um, you know, sort of clean, usable, um, multi center data that you can ask clinical questions from. But I think that's something that I'm really interested in and I'm hoping to sort of leverage that data to ask questions in all types and fields with the common thread really being um, how are we delivering care to our patients and you know are we actually achieving what we think we're achieving or are there unintended consequences um, harms or benefits um, to the care that we provide and how can we answer those questions in sort of a more rigorous manner and really have the um, sort of empiric evidence to support our practices.
0: Yeah, there's definitely a lot of challenges and opportunities you know, in the era of big data, multi-center EHR data. Dr. Han, thank you so much for being with us. I look forward to more of your work in the future.
1: Thanks so much, I appreciate it.
0: Thank you all for listening to The Elevator Pitch. Join us next time for the big picture behind the latest critical care studies.